Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Rowan Lee. We're continuing with more episodes from our Cooking Across the Black Diaspora series this past February. As part of Black History Month, we worked together with the Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale to build a series that celebrated the food traditions and innovations of Afro and Black identifying peoples. Today's episode features Kiki Luya, co-owner and founder of The Farmer's Hand and Folk, two food businesses located in Detroit. Kiki now also heads up Nest Egg, an all-women hospitality group committed to fair wages and environmental sustainability. A Congolese-American chef in her own right, Kiki chats with us about her city, Detroit, its urban agriculture and food justice scenes, and the hope for reimagining local economies. Here's Kiki with podcast manager Thomas Hagen. To start off, I was just wondering if you could tell us more about your heritage and your upbringing in Detroit and Mm -hmm. how they've influenced your work in food and hospitality. Sure. So I was born and raised in Detroit. My parents, neither one of them are actually from Detroit at all. My father was born in Kinshasa, which is in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And my mother is from a very small town in Arkansas called Blythesville. We're talking like outhouses. (laughs) It's very, very small, lots of farmland. And they ended up meeting around Chicago. And then my father is a civil engineer. So he got a job in Detroit and they both moved. And then I'm one of four girls. My mother really is white and Southern. Blonde hair, blue eyes, now gray hair, blue eyes. And my dad, of course, you know, being from the Congo, the way that they approach food There's a lot of similarities, but there's also a lot of differences. So I just remember growing up and in my very younger years, my dad used to cook a lot more. So we used to have, you know, lots of plantain, lots of fufu, lots of hearty stews. And my mother, I remember when I would go and visit her, my grandmother and my aunts and everything, they cooked with a lot of bacon grease. And it was just very traditional Southern food, Johnny cakes, that kind of thing. Some kind of Appalachian food, too, would find its way in there. So that was really kind of the food that I grew up eating and then eventually found my way through it and found my own voice through it, too. And what were your first jobs in the restaurant business like, and how old were you? Sure. So my first job, I would say in food service, actually, was I was at a coffee shop. I was 15. I remember I had to sign, like, a work permit. And also we did, like, it was like a little cafe, so we did soup salad sandwiches very casual. And then I remember my first job like in a real restaurant kitchen was when I was about 17 years old. And I remember the coffee shop and then the restaurant kitchen were very, very different. It was a fine dining establishment that I'd worked at when I was about 17. And it was it was all the things that you imagine a kitchen to be in a very antiquated way. So I was one of the only women We were not treated very well, lots of sexual harassment, lots of swearing. That's where I developed a decent potty mouth myself and kind of learned how to defend myself. In the kitchen, it wasn't the best experience, truthfully, but it was one that there's something when you really, really get into restaurant culture and you really get into hospitality and serving others, you kind of take the good with the bad. And there's a lot of really good moments there, too, where people were really pleased with the food and the service that we were giving. And I kind of 
found that that is what I really enjoyed more and that potentially the kitchen cultures could change depending on the restaurant, but that feeling of really serving others and giving them an experience that for some of them was like a once in a lifetime experience, that was really fulfilling. And where were you in your career when you decided to open The Farmer's Hand? And what inspired you to open the store? Sure. I think I had lived many a life in food service and also just professionally. I had I had worked on and off in food. I had also worked on and off in nonprofits as well. And so I was kind of doing both and kind of dancing around the idea of like, well, does a real adult have a nine to five? And is that what I'm supposed to do versus I really, really enjoy working in kitchens. I really, really enjoy working with food. And I had just left New York, moved to Chicago, worked there for a little bit in restaurants, more of the fine dining atmosphere. When I moved back to Detroit, which was essentially for my family and my husband, I realized that I was tired of working for other people at that point, and I really wanted to do something myself. And I felt like I was connecting the dots, too, between some of the urban farms in the area and some of the people who are also making really beautiful product from those fruits and vegetables. And then how do I make this accessible to everyone all the time? And that was kind of the foundation for the farmer's hand. And can you explain what makes it different than other grocery stores that were common in Detroit? At the sure. Time we opened? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So the farmer's hand, the main difference was that we were, when we first started, we were all local, meaning all Michigan. That's how we define local. For us, we, you know, as we kind of grew and evolved, we realized that we really like wine and Michigan has a little bit of growing to do as far as wine is concerned. So we started to bring in some other regional partners, but we are a hyper local grocery store, meaning that we even source from within half a mile away, mere blocks away. And that was really different because you can't go to a supermarket or your traditional grocery store and find produce that is grown right there in the soil directly next to the grocery. And what was the landscape of grocery stores and food businesses like in Detroit at the time that you opened? Yeah, so I think at the time, media might say that we were beginning this kind of food revolution in Detroit. We were starting to change our own narrative. But at that time, we had one main grocery store in Detroit, and that was Whole Foods. And when Whole Foods came into Detroit, it was a really big deal because we had typically been seen as a food desert, meaning that the major grocery stores had left the city decades before. And so Whole Foods was really the first one to come back, or not even come back, but just come into the city and say, hey, we're going to give this a try. And at the time, 2015, about 14, 15. So this was like when I was still planning in the farmer's hand. We finally opened in 2016. But at the time, I think it was 2015 that the Whole Foods opened, right about that time. And it was a big deal. They didn't even think that it would do very well. And come to find out, it's actually one of their highest grossing Whole Foods in the entire country and definitely in the state of Michigan. So that kind of goes to show that people needed access to fresh food. And in the city at the time, the only other real options were grocery stores where, because no one wanted to deliver to Detroit, food was rotting on the shelves, things were expired. It really especially at your neighborhood grocery stores, it was more like little liquor stores. And there really wasn't much fresh produce at all. And how did you go from the farmer's hand to then opening your restaurant, Folk? Purely out of necessity. The farmer's hand, we always wanted it to be a neighborhood bodega, for lack of a better 
word. It is pretty pint size. And for us, that was exactly how we wanted it to be. We didn't want to be this huge store. And we always used to say, in any place that you are in the store, we want to be able to see customers. And you can't typically say that about your traditional grocery stores. You get hidden amongst the shelves. It's really huge. We didn't want the stores to swallow the product and the people. So we also had a little cafe in the farmer's hand when we were doing a lot of soup salad sandwiches and some pretty ambitious stuff considering it was like a four-foot prep space. It was really, (laughs) really tiny. We had this like little griddle that we would grill up these sandwiches and they were good. They were really, really good and people were responding because it was a lunch option where there hadn't really been in the neighborhood before. But because of that, we we couldn't keep up with ourselves. We just needed to grow as far as capacity. And one of the spaces directly next to us ended up opening up the restaurant there, didn't follow through with their lease. And so immediately we just said, yes, we want this. And we didn't really have a concept. All we knew was that we needed to have a cafe. We needed to expand that and keep grocery in the farmer's hand and move the cafe over. And that was the beginning of Folk. And so what goes into deciding what's on the menu at Folk? So our process has definitely changed over the time. At the very beginning, it was really me and Rohani. That's my business partner. And she's Indigenous Australian. And with my Congolese background, and also I cook a lot of Mediterranean food, that was a lot of you know, the restaurant work that I had done. So we just kind of riffed off of one another. And I think the first menu that we did for Folk was probably the most labor-intensive I think that we were just in our heads a lot and thinking and overthinking and trying different things out and trying various recipes. And then we kind of got our feet. So really, it was just a collaborative process. And it was very organic where, you know, I might have an idea for something and say, hey, I really want to put sardines on the menu. And this is what I'm thinking. And the reason being is because I was always kind of ashamed for growing up eating sardines. It's not typical American food and it's smelly. So when you have sardines at lunch, people are like, what are you? What is this? But it was it was just kind of these ideas, and it was things that we were feeling inspired by. And then we started to realize that if we were lacking inspiration, it meant that we needed to kind of get out of ourselves and get out of the restaurant and start to experience and travel and and taste. So sometimes there were times that things just kind of flowed out of us, and we had re- recipes already figured out. Then there were other times where we really needed to go out and find that inspiration, and we did. And now it's a little different because we hired a chef de cuisine. So while we might have more of an executive chef role, this oversight, Jesse, who's our chef de cuisine, really is the driving force of the menu today. And, you know, some might say it looks a little bit different than the original folk, but that's okay. That's Jesse's voice. And I think as chefs, we need to be able to put whatever it is that we're feeling out on the menu and out on the plate. And so if this is what Jesse is experiencing right now and what she feels really confident in, then if it tastes good and it looks good, then I'm all for it. So at both of your businesses, what's the process like for building relationships with local farmers, including urban farmers in Mm. Detroit? Sure. So with the farmer's hand, we really, really took our time to get to know the farmers. And I think that if there's something that we can maybe do better as we continue to grow, that's one of those things. Because, you know, when we were planning the business, we put a lot of effort into actually visiting the farms. So we would talk to people, introduce ourselves, and then we would go visit them and really see what their growing methods were, see what they're planning, work on some succession planning with them, and just really form these relationships. And the relationships take some time. So even when we would do that at the very beginning, our relationships with some farmers from then to now just has grown because we're just used to doing business together. And there's this trust that eventually emerges. And I think that 
every relationship is kind of like that. But with the farmers, it's less about like this is an exchange of goods and services and more so like this is a long-lasting, sustainable relationship and we want to help you grow just as much as we want to grow. Awesome. Yeah. So I want to talk about fair wages, environmental sustainability, and profitability, which are three things that you're balancing at both Farmer's Hand and Folk. Yeah. So can you take us a little behind the scenes and tell us about what it takes to keep these things in balance? Sure. It actually is the trickiest thing. Well, let me let me say this. I think the thing that I wish I had have been told when I first started the businesses was that the hardest part of running the business is really the human resources. I think that menu and cooking and scheduling and all that kind of stuff, sourcing and even just plain customer service are sometimes second nature. And that's that's where it gets to be really fun. But really dealing with people is very tricky. And I think that because our business is so grounded in making sure that people are happy from the customer to our employees, we have to also have an eye to profitability. And that balance is very tricky at times because, for example, right now we're in February. It's very, very cold in Detroit. and People don't always want to leave their house. So our numbers look a lot different than they do in, you know, the middle of June when we have a full patio out there and people are excited to just be outside. So I think that for us, it is a constant every week, every day, looking at numbers, figuring out how to tweak things. And as far as the fair wage and fair, like equitable treatment of people, the reasons that those things are so important is because I've experienced all of the above. And as far as being a woman and being a woman of color in the kitchen, um, I never wanted anyone in my restaurants or my businesses to feel as though they were less than for any reason. And that could be because the customer feels that way or because the people in charge feel that way. And so trying to figure out what equity really looks like is this constant, I wouldn't want to say battle. Battle sounds like a really negative word, but more so just it's a balance. And the biggest thing is that I noticed a discrepancy between front and back of the house labor and wages in particular. So that was really the beginning of it for us was that front of the house tends to, even at a you know minimum tipped wage, tends to take home much, much more than the back of the house. And of course, when you become like a chef de cuisine or an executive chef, you're making a little bit of a different wage, but typically your line cooks are not taking home the same as front of the house. And so, and there's various reasons behind that. And there's also a lot of dynamics as to like, who is in back of the house positions versus who is in front of the house positions and the optics of a restaurant as well. That all kind of goes into it. And so I wanted to kind of shift that that paradigm. I wanted to figure out a way that, and perhaps it's not perfect, but it's this constant thing where I think that we have to reevaluate just our industry in general and how we truly treat people. What types of people do you find your businesses serving? Is it the people you expected to be there? Is it hyperlocal people, people who are interested in food or people who sure. don't know about food? You know, I'd have to say that each business is different. Even though they're located right next to one another, I think that the customer who tends to shop or dine at Folk is a little bit different, maybe has a little bit more disposable income than, say, the farmer's hand, which is a little bit more approachable. That could be a lot of things. It could be aesthetics of the space. It could be the kind of food that we serve. It could be our price points. But I think that what I expected was that the neighborhood in particular would kind of patronize the spaces. And what I'm coming to find out is that they do with the farmer's hand, but with folk 
it tends to be people coming from farther out, like the suburbs, for example. And I think that that's true, though, with restaurants in the city in general right now, is that we do rely a lot on suburban traffic. And so in Detroit, I understand that access to high-quality, nutritious foods can be limited, especially in low-income neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So how are inequities and issues of access similar between the restaurant business and grocery business? Mm -hmm. And how are they different between those Mm -hmm. two businesses? Sure. So that's a really good question. I'm going to start with different, I think, Mm -hmm. because I do see more differences than I do similarities. I think that really, truly, dining out is a luxury. And I think especially when you talk about economically challenged neighborhoods, dining out looks a lot different than it might in affluent neighborhoods. And so restaurants like Folk, for example, are not as accessible as I would always like them to be. And so your dining out might look like fast food. It might look like your corner store. It might look like the vending machine. And I think that with grocery, at the end of the day, everyone does need to eat, right? But at a grocery, because there are such a variety of products at varying price points, I think that for the most part, people can find things within their budget and potentially with a little bit of like guidance or coaching too. Like, hey, what are you trying to make? Let's look over here. I think as far as similarities go, I think any access is better than none. And so I think as far as, well, there was something that I learned years ago and I didn't really understand it until I saw it really in practice in Detroit especially is that sometimes when it comes to economic development of an area, restaurants are the first. Restaurants will typically come to an area, and because um, they're not looking for a captive audience right there, but because they are a restaurant and maybe they have a really great menu or a great chef behind it, people will come there. So it's like a destination place. And once you kind of start there, then all of a sudden you start to see these other businesses kind of pop in because you need someone to test the waters. So... I think there could be some similarities between restaurants and grocery just simply in that their very existence helps people survive. But I do think that as far as restaurants are concerned, we're really catering to a certain kind of person. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned already, many writers and food critics are paying a lot of attention to the urban revival taking place in Detroit right now. Mm. But what do you personally want people to know about what's taking place in Detroit that you think? a lot of people in media might be missing or misrepresenting? Mm. So I think population growth, really. I think that, so when I moved back to Detroit five, six years ago, Detroit looks a lot different now than it did back then. And even before that, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So as far as the amount of businesses and people coming back to the city to patronize these businesses, we are heading in the right direction. But I think that something that people should know is that Detroit has a really difficult history with, you know, they call it white flight when, you know, the riots happened and um, most of the white residents in Detroit did leave to go to the suburbs. Which decade are you talking about? This was back in the 60s. Yeah. And so we haven't really recovered from that. There still is, I mean, we're an 80 percent African-American population in Detroit right now. And I think that people need to be really conscious of that when they talk about who this revival benefits as well, because is it benefiting the people who are currently there or 
is it, are we trying to get people to come back? And are we trying to get those white residents who previously fled to come back? But at the same time, are we building these businesses or building these companies specifically for them or to actually employ people who are currently within the city? Or are we pushing them out? So I think that it's just, it's a very difficult balance because a lot of people who have been living in Detroit for very many years who have gone through these mostly down periods of our really checkered history are feeling as though they are being pushed out and they're losing their homes and they're losing their homes for reasons that they can't even necessarily get their minds around like water shutoffs and like foreclosures. So I just really want people to understand that revolutions or this like upturn of, you know, Detroit's narrative sometimes comes at the expense of others. And also we just really need to be conscious about including everyone in what we consider to be progress. And beyond that, I think that population growth is one of those things too, is that Detroit, our population isn't really growing. We just kind of push people out and then bring different people in. And so if you look at our population growth over the span of five years, while you might think that there's a lot of new residents, it's really only kind of like ticking upwards, very, very small. And so as far as businesses are concerned, especially with restaurant businesses, we are seeing an oversaturation because there's only so many people in the city of Detroit who can patronize our businesses at any given time. So we still have to rely on people outside to come and visit us. So I think that the narrative is just not complete, but but we're getting there. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm your host, Erwin Lee. If you're enjoying this episode so far, please subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Your support empowers and inspires us to tell more stories and reach more people like you. In other words, you're helping us be us. Thank you for listening. Now back to the show. So Folk and the Farmer's Hand emphasize gourmet and artisanal food, Mm -hmm. which is language that's not always tied in with conversations about food justice. And a lot of people might more often connect these terms with conversations about gentrification and Mm -hmm. prohibitive prices. So how do you see gourmet and artisanal food fitting into food justice and racial justice? Sure. So I definitely agree with that. And it's actually one of the things that I had to understand for myself early on is that you can't be everything to everyone, right? But at the same time, you could offer a little something for everyone. So I do think that there are, using that kind of terminology, we are marketing to a very specific customer, and that customer typically is not low income or disadvantaged in any kind of way, really. But also, it's a restaurant, and the restaurants have the thinnest margins you'll ever see. And so it really is a tricky balance because, and also of size. So Folk is very small, less than 30 seats. And so because of that, you almost have to figure out, like, if we had, it's either volume or it's price point. And we're trying to hit somewhere in the middle. But again, there is, you know, there's always going to be, like, egg and toast, right, on the menu. There's always going to be something that's a little bit more affordable. We still have a really good cup of coffee and we'll do free refills. But at the same time, we have to we have to know who we are. And I do think that, for example, I can't afford to eat at Folk every single day. I don't expect anyone else to be able to as well. But when you want to treat yourself or treat your family and 
um, maybe you can afford to do so that month, then we will welcome you in with open arms. And that's just the understanding. And so I think that, you know, gourmet food is possible. It can just be a treat. And it's, it doesn't have to be an everyday thing. And can you talk a little bit about how your identity as a biracial woman of color fits into your positionality in the urban revival? And how do you see your identity influencing your relationship with other business owners and your customers? Sure. So I think that as a biracial woman, I have this duality, right? And I think that the really interesting part is that sometimes when people look at me, they don't actually know that I'm African-American, which when I was younger would really be hurtful because, you know, my thought was you don't really see part of me. You don't see who I am. But then at the same time, other people would. And I think that, you know, I have this, I have my mother and my mother's family and they're from the South and truthfully, the part of the South that they're from and even their mindset before my mother married my father was very racist. They actually told her that she shouldn't marry him because he was black. Whereas my dad and my mother, I should say, my mother grew up very poor and my father grew up not poor at all. And so when my father married my mother, his family said, well, you're marrying someone of a lower class than you. And so it was just like a really interesting way of kind of seeing things. But, you know, they have been together ever since. And so I think that, like, again, there's like these layers, too, where it's rich versus poor, it's black versus white, it's south versus north. And so up until recently, I didn't realize what a privilege it was to kind of see things from various lenses. And I think that as far as my relations with the business community and just being a business owner myself in Detroit, especially at this time when we have the potential to start to teach people about our history and then learn from some of the mistakes of the past and then figure out a way to all work together and in something that's more positive than it has been in the past five decades plus, I do think that I have the ability to listen and then also to give perspective. And I think that that's really the only way that any of us can really move forward in a lot of these really difficult conversations is I understand that there is a way of thinking that is not my own, but I also have an understanding of where that might potentially come from. And so potentially moving forward with kindness, but also, again, this perspective so people could see the other side might be helpful. Yeah. What are some ideas or challenges in food justice that you find yourself continually revisiting and reevaluating? that you might have evolved on since you began your career? Hmm. So, you know, the one thing that I think we do really, really well in Detroit is that if you're not sourcing from local farmers, you're not, it, everyone does that. It's almost like the standard of all of our restaurants there. And you'll see it as you kind of dine out that everyone's doing it to a certain extent. And it's because we love our farmers and we love, you know, the fact that we're the number two, like, agriculturally diverse state in the entire country just behind California. It's That speaks volumes considering what our seasonality really looks like. We're very cold for a lot of the year. But I think that I do, I do struggle with kind of this have and have not. I think that as far as food justice is concerned, I still really want to understand how I can be a better player in providing access where there previously wasn't any. And I think with Corktown, 
with our proximity to Detroit. And now we're kind of known as this like restaurant hub of the city. It's the oldest neighborhood in the city. And so by all accounts, Corktown actually has a lot of access. But then what happens to neighborhoods in the rest of the city? And I think that we typically just focus on this like 7.2 square mile radius, which is like right around downtown. But we are a huge city. We have like 300 square miles of land. And there are a lot of areas that are not even being thought about in like these changes that we're making. And so I just really want to figure out how to kind of bring that around to other neighborhoods of the city. And also, especially because those neighborhoods typically don't have as many resources, especially in terms of financial resources. So how do we start to figure out how to take what we do in the 7.2 square miles and extend it outwards? And I just think that Maybe we have some of the answers right now, but I'm really interested to figure out how and also how it can be not only just profitable, but sustainable. I think that sometimes like sometimes things aren't going to always be profitable and that's okay as long as they are self-sustaining. And maybe that is the model that we can start looking towards. So who are some chefs and restaurateurs doing work on food justice right now who have given you some inspiration? Oh, so... Malik. Malik is, yeah, Black Security Network doing a food co-op in the North End, which is a very economically disadvantaged neighborhood. He is, and pardon me, I should say Detroit Black Food Security Network. But he is, he's been doing this work for a very, very long time. And I think that any kind of kind of tip of the needle towards any kind of real progress in food justice in Detroit also comes from Malik. You'll see him behind it. And he's also been planning this food co-op in that neighborhood for a very long time, has been overseeing a farm for a very long time, and just speaks about this, especially in terms of like race and equity. So him, I think he's amazing. Davida Davison, who's also a mentor of mine. Davida is the executive director of Food Lab Detroit. And Davida is so amazing in that she's a very powerful voice and she uses it exactly the right way, which is essentially to kind of push things forward and to get people to really think about what role they play in kind of the greater picture here. I think to Davida understands that there are a lot of different food businesses and they have a lot of different ways that they can contribute to, again, this like bigger whole and I just really appreciate that she has always been a champion of good food, and she's always been such a supportive person. So those two for sure. And just to wrap things up, can you tell us about what you're working on right now, and how do you imagine your businesses will evolve in the future? Yeah. Are you working toward anything? Yep, I am. So one thing I can't say yet, but I will say <laughs> that I think I'm working mostly on being able to tell my story and tell it honestly. So I'm doing a lot more public speaking, but also just in terms of, I think that sometimes there, there was a lot of shame for me growing up and wanting to be in the restaurant culture because my parents put a lot of money and effort into my education and they were really deeply saddened in my early 20s when I said, yeah, but I just want to work in restaurants. And they didn't understand that. And I think that now they kind of see how everything has come full circle. But in your early 20s, that approval really means something. And 
and so I, I did. I felt a lot of shame. And I, I realized that there's nothing to be shameful or feel ashamed of as far as hospitality is concerned. My father, again, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, his thought about service was that you're a servant. Because in the Congo, that's typically who people are, is that if they are cooking or cleaning or taking care of you in that way, they actually are your servants. And so coming to America, it looks a little bit different. And so, you know, he actually said to me when I was, I think, like 18 years old or something like, you you are too educated to be someone's servant. And I just always thought I'm not someone's servant, but this is this is really beautiful work is to be able to give people this experience every single day. This feels really good. And so why wouldn't I do something that feels really good? And so I think that sharing those real hard truths with people could potentially be a way that they can then feel inspired to kind of grow and live in their own truth as well. So that's something that I am definitely working towards. And then also something that I do in conjunction, but really outside of the restaurants, is I am the economic development manager of a nonprofit. And so we're working on some mixed-use properties, and we're also looking towards figuring out what food businesses we should include in the neighborhood. And that is very much something that I am excited to start to recruit and also provide support and really just figure out how to help move the needle forward as far as the next generation is concerned. To me, I very much consider myself to be really lucky in what I've already accomplished. And so it's time now to start to look towards the next generation of cooks and see where they want to go and try to lend a helping hand. From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. You can follow more of Kiki on Instagram at kiki underscore luya. This episode was produced by Alexa Stanger, Amy Zhang, Thomas Hagen, and myself, Erwin Lee. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis De Felice. Artwork by Logan Howard. Program support by Jacqueline Mono, Jeremy Oldfield, Noah Macy, and Mark Bomford. Special thanks to the following organizations for also supporting Kiki's visit. Timothy Dwight College and the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration. Next time, we chat with Bryant Terry, chef in residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora. See you in two weeks.